Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Teacology. I'm Brian White, co-founder and CEO of Yopon Brothers American Tea, and we're recording from our headquarters here in Edgewater, Florida. Today's special guest is Henrietta Lovell, founder and CEO of Rare Tea Company based in London and author of the new book, Infused Adventures in Tea. Henrietta's traveled all throughout the world searching for the finest teas on earth, and she's the go-to tea supplier for some of the most acclaimed restaurants and hotels, such as Noma in Copenhagen, Claridge's in London, and many others. We'd like to welcome Henrietta to the program, and thank you for listening to Teacology. Okay. Henrietta, thanks for joining us for Teacology. Um, you're the founder of Rare Tea Company in London. Yeah. And you founded that company in 2004. That's How did right. you get started? Thanks so much. So I interrupted you already. I'm so rude. I'm constantly going to do that. So forgive me. Um, yeah, 2004. Can you believe it? It feels like, I mean, I remember very viscerally the early days. So it feels very close. And yet it's a lifetime away. Um, I got started because I was traveling a lot in China, um, which was rather a rare thing to do back in the early 2000s. It was the turn of the millennium and China had been very closed and it really hadn't been possible to travel around very much. And I was just there at the right time to be able to find a little way into some of the ancient tea growing places, which hadn't been visited for a long time. And when a, um, a young woman in a red dress turned up. It did look a little ridiculous. And I think people, I would think I was so ridiculous. People weren't afraid. I think you had a red dress on when I met you uh, a few months ago down in Miami. Is that like a uh, trademark? Thing yeah, well, I, uh, I do love a little red. I'm a show off. So that's uh, goes without saying. Um, but also, you know, over the years I have, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding big-headed. Um, I have a little notoriety in our world, and sometimes it's easier just to have a kind of um, recognizable um, image. And then people don't look too too far beneath that. It's like a baffle, like red lipstick. If you forgot to put your mascara on, if you've got red lipstick, people don't really notice. Well, when you, hopefully with the, with the red dress, they won't look too much at um, the wrinkles and the, I don't know, hairy legs, something that I, <laughs> I'm not always the most uh, perfectly turned out, but you know, it's hard when you're traveling all the time, isn't it? It is. It's hard to keep your coiffure in order. Yes. Traveling around. Not that I, not, not that I've changed much. Um, now that I've not been traveling very much. And that's, I don't, that's I'm insane. not even wearing red lipstick today. Not even trying to baffle you. So it, it's, that's the way, uh, that's the new normal, right? We, our old lives have changed and uh, we're all adjusting. Mm, I've actually enjoyed being stationary much more than I realized. Because before I was spending at least six months, probably more traveling around the world uh, to visit tea gardens and also to promote uh, tea in my book and work with restaurants around the world. So it was very peripatetic. And now I've been in one place quietly and um, there's a lot to enjoy in that it was very discombobulating at first but i've actually enjoyed it more than i thought and i didn't think it was possible 
so that's been a, a lovely miracle of this lockdown yeah we're all learning new things about ourselves i feel um well i'm not see, saying that i don't have ants in my pants though <laughs> i mean i'm really not saying that <laughs> yeah, i i can understand um part of what you've been doing through rare tea company is redefining what what good tea means and I, and especially here in america i feel like consumers really don't have a good grasp of of what that actually means sorry so in your opinion henrietta what what is good tea um I think it's something that we really do need to consider because sometimes we just act very blindly when we consume and buy tea. We just go to a store, buy a box that we like, look at a price point that we like and don't consider further where that tea comes from. Who's grown it? How's it being crafted? And what's our relationship between the, um, the buyer and the seller? There are, a lot of injustices in the world that we're all becoming very aware of right now. And one of them that's very, very deep is the tea trade. People who uh, make the tea are not getting an equitable exchange. I'm going to say this. I'm trying to say this very carefully so as not to get myself in too much hot water. But in North America and Europe, 90% of the tea is sold by seven companies. That's the status quo. And from those seven companies, it goes to all the little small tea companies and then it gets branded and repackaged and sold and blended and whatever else. But think of that, seven companies. And they could have a, you know, a huge amount of power in the tea world. And the reality is that the tea that we're drinking is not coming from China and it's not coming from Yorkshire for British people who drink their tea bags. It's coming from East Africa and India and Sri Lanka. And the people on tea gardens in those places, the people who are making that tea, are living in poverty. A poverty we would really not accept for our families, for our children, for our brothers and sisters, for our friends. This is a poverty where there's not sufficient health care, there's not educational opportunities. Life expectancy can be as low as the 40s and rarely reaches above the 50s. That's the status quo of tea. So we really need to think again, what makes good tea? So coming back to your question, it's a very long-winded answer, but the first is it's got to taste amazing, okay? It has to, I mean, we're not going to invest our time and our money in something that isn't amazing. So I seek out the best tasting, the best flavors, the really finest tea I can in terms of flavor. And then it has to be good for us. So I seek out tea that's not covered in pesticides and herbicides and not put into a bag made of plastics and bleaches and glues and chemicals. So something that is pure and clean and is going to be like a medicine for our bodies. And lastly, but most importantly, that it's good for the people who make it. So I buy direct from farmers and pay a price that they set to help uh, support and stimulate their communities. That's absolutely crucial. And that is, that's then change is possible. If I don't go through the big seven, I work directly with farmers, then I can make sure they get an equitable exchange for the, uh, for the product they're selling. And then I'm buying the best quality I can. I'm paying a higher price for it, just as we would with wine or cheese or olive oil or beer. 
everything. You know, we understand that. But if we buy better, it costs a little bit more because it costs more to make. And the same is true of tea. Sorry, that was very long. No, it was perfect. We have all the time that you want to give us. So, um, so do you think it's like with wine, for example, a consumer or customer sees a bottle of wine that's a little bit more expensive than another bottle? And, and do you feel like there's an assumption there that it's higher quality? And I, <laughs> I just see they don't have that same connotation with tea for some reason. You know, no, it's it, really strange, isn't it? Yeah. Because they do. If you, it's the same as you're in the store and you're looking to buy some olive oil and you're like, okay, this one I might use for cooking and this one, oh, I'm going to have with my bread or on my salad. Um, and when we buy cheese, okay, okay, that bright orange one that's wrapped in plastic wrapping in single slices is going to be cheaper, but isn't going to have the same flavor profile as the beautiful artisanal cheese that's crafted on a farm and you know, I can hear you drinking tea there. I see. What have you got? Well, you know, I'm a Yopan zealot, so I'm good. I'm, good, I'm good, drinking good. I actually had some yesterday in preparation, and I remembered how fascinating and complex and extraordinary it is. It's yeah. really not like anything else. It's such a unique, amazing flavor. And but um, sorry. Um, I now I've forgotten what I was saying. I'm just thinking about your tea. Um. What was that saying? Waffling on. Can you remember? I, I lost you for just about three seconds there. What was the what question? Was I, saying? I uh, can't remember what I was talking about. <laughs> well, that's okay. We segued into Yopan and I'm I'm drinking it and I'm drinking it loose, kind of in honor of you, um, because you're an advocate for loose leaf tea. Mm. And um I think that's great, you know, and it's definitely a a trend that is going in the right direction, I feel. Um, yeah. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but uh, of course, you know, we sell all different sorts of products here. Some of them are in tea bags, mm -hmm. some of them aren't. But I, I definitely agree with you that. And we talked about this before, and I'm not here to criticize um, mm -hmm. because you need to bring your, your product to market. Sure. So it's a, it's a, it's a hard decision to make to say, okay, I'm not going to put anything in bags because consumers consume bags. And let's try and change, shift the consumer um, rather than berate the producer. So the reason why I, I feel that um, it's better to drink it loose is because we have all the kits super simply, you know, um, a French press is not complicated. A teapot is not complicated. It's, you know, and it's something that we can use over and over again and use through generations. I have teapots that are hundreds of years old, you know, and they're such beautiful, priceless um, objects, but they can be very simple and utilitarian and inexpensive and still last for generations. I have a, you know, a stainless steel pot that's over a hundred years old. It's absolutely perfect. A tea bag is not sustainable because it's a single use, whether it's made of paper or plastic. And when we talk about plastics, that um, when someone says, oh, I've got to buy degradable cornstarch, that's still a plastic. And in order to turn corn into plastic or paper into, or trees into paper, there is um, um, a necessary industrial process that uses chemicals as well. So it's not... Um, it's not easy it's not hard to understand that turning a tree into paper is um is 
not the most sustainable um, well, use of a tree. Sure. Sorry, I'm not being very um, erudite today, very clear. But um, a book is also turning uh, a tree into paper, but hopefully a book, again, will be passed down generations and isn't single use. Well, I still have mine right here. Oh, thank you, thank that, you. That I got down in Miami when I met you, uh, when you were on your book tour. And so we might as well just get into your book since we already started talking about it. Um, I thought it was just so interesting to read about your journey with tea. I mean, that's the only word I can think of to describe it is you going to origin, you're visiting the producers directly and you have, you know, a direct relationship with them. And um, it was just fascinating to read about that. And I, I liked the part where you mentioned your, your morning ritual um, because I think we all have one and we were just kind of talking about it uh, before we started the program. And can you describe that for us? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a long time that I've had this ritual and it hasn't really deviated very much because it's such a huge pleasure is that I make um, bed tea. I make tea without really waking up. I do it quite um, gently and with my eyes almost closed. I just put the kettle on, prepare my tea things and then I come back to bed and I drink tea in bed. And it's such an important start to the day for me to to quietly lie back in the pillows and enjoy my tea as I gently wake up. And I actually enjoy the getting out of bed and making it. We were saying that it's hard to get up in the morning, whatever time. But knowing that the first thing I get to do is drink tea makes it a little easier, you know? I think for some people it's breakfast, you know, like, oh, at least I can have my breakfast. But for me, it's at least I know I'm gonna have this huge pleasure of tea. And so that moment of, um, waiting for the kettle to boil. And by the way, America, an electric kettle boils super fast. You don't need to put too much water in the bottom. You can put just a few inches for your, you know, your cup of tea um, and it will be momentarily and use much less power than a, than a stove top. Mm -hmm. Although the whistle is rather charming. I've got a whole pile of kettles over here. You can't see them, but they're, um, I have a collection. So, yeah. We use them. Funny how um, kettle. I suppose it's about making tea at home and having a bit of equipment. You know, in Britain we make tea all the time. The average is six cups a day. Whereas I suppose if you're only going to drink tea occasionally, it's a it's a it's a bit of kit that you don't necessarily need in a small kitchen. But with the advance of coffee and people making coffee in new ways and not just using a coffee pot, let's get rid of the coffee pot, the percolatory thing and put a kettle back and then anyway, I digress again. Yes. I, I go back to bed with my, with my tea and I really savor every thought. It's kind of like meditation, you know, I'm enjoying the flavor. I have that time and people say, Oh, but I don't have time in the morning. I'm in such a rush but we're talking 10 minutes, you know, 10, maybe I could, you know, make me 15. And people say, oh, I haven't got time for 10 minutes in the morning. And I, I say to them, like, you don't have to have a shower. You could just wash. Your body doesn't need to have a full shower every day, you know, but you don't, you choose to have that shower because it feels really good. You feel amazing. Your skin is all clean. You smell great. You know, it's a lovely wake up. Yeah. So it's, it's 10 just, minutes, um... you know, you say, oh, I haven't got time. I could just, you know, use a wet one. Oh, how horrible would that be? And I think the same <laughs> about putting a tea bag in a cup. 
like, oh, really? That's the way to start the day? It's kind of abusing yourself. Yeah. It's, it's all about priorities, right? So, well, okay. I wanted to change gears a little bit um, here because you actually have very technical knowledge of the tea trade. And um, I was reading through some of it and, and re going through your bio and you were talking about at one point um, organic stamps and what they mean and don't mean. And I, this really resonated with me because we have two organic certifications, including EU equivalency. And I know how onerous that process was and I know how expensive it was. And I 100% agree with you that there's no way small farmers could ever go through that process, um, could ever afford to go through it. And it's not really fair because um, they, they could be growing their crops in a, in a very sustainable and organic way. And they're not getting credit for it because they're not allowed to use the marketing tools, which is all an organic yeah. stamp is, in my opinion, to help them sell their products. And I don't know if you feel the same way about that, but. Well, you know, I, I mean, it's a really, really tough one. In, uh, when I'm at home in Britain or if I'm in America, I will buy organic fruit and vegetables because I don't want a lot of chemicals on my food. Of course, but I'd make the exception if I was going to visit um, a farm, a little farm, you know, like, or a farmer's market. I'd talk to the farmer, how do you grow your vegetables? Are you using pesticides and herbicides? No, we're, we're you know, we, you do things very naturally. You know, you have that relationship. You can know that the food is clean. But as you say, in America and in, uh, in Europe, we have the technical know-how, the ability, the, the, um, the, just the Wi-Fi to be able to go online and complete forms. And if you're a small farmer in, in Nepal, let's say, or East Africa, and you're producing something that you've never used pesticides and herbicides, you're completely clean, you, as you said so rightly, it's very, very onerous. You probably don't have the language skills. You definitely don't have the technology skills to do that. You might not even have a computer. And then here's the bit. Organic certification bodies are for-profit businesses. The same thing with fair trade, for-profit businesses. All the certification industry is a for-profit business. So it's really expensive. And only the big guys can afford to do it. And I know as a consumer, I want to have something clean. I would rather have something that I knew was tend to have herbicides. But so I thought there has to be a solution to this. And so we get the testing done. I will work with farmers who don't have certification, but do farm sustainably and organically. And then as a, as a company, we then have it tested so that the responsibility is with us who have the wherewithal and not the farmer. So I think there are solutions to, um, unjust systems mm -hmm. and there are also reasons why those systems exist so it's not to say that organic certification is completely wrong it just doesn't it's not a blanket success it's the same with fair trade fair trade is um an organization that hopes to uh, end some of the worst degradation in uh, in farming across the world so it, it guarantees a price. Um, so in, in tea, it's you get like a 50 cents extra a kilo for fair trade tea and there's a fair trade minimum. But unfortunately, 
the fair trade minimum doesn't isn't isn't monitored the minimum price uh, very effectively so it can in the years that i was buying fair trade tea the price of product um the fair trade minimum was below the cost of production so it wasn't really helping the farmers we were working with and the 50 cents a kilo is great if you're buying commodity tea it it guarantees at least 50 cents extra but i was i buy high quality high well crafted tea which might be 12 14 times the price of commodity tea so the extra 50 cents means nothing and the real um, money that was coming from the fair trade tea we were selling was coming from a percentage of the sales price that fair trade take the sale price and that goes to fair trade so they were getting 80% of the revenue we were raising so you know fair trade might be okay for commodity tea but for my business it made no sense which is why we set up rare charity so tell us a little bit about rare charity um, so again like sorry, sorry I keep interrupting like, no, like no. direct trade um, you know, working with a farm directly means we can make sure that the revenue goes to the farmer. And um, we thought, okay, let's do that with charity too. Let's set up a charity that works directly on the farms. Um, and I asked all the people who, all the community around the world that we work with, like, what is it that you, if we took the fair trade money and gave it to you directly, what would you want it for? And they said, well, the most important thing is hope that our children will have better lives. And the, the best way we think to to achieve that is to give them better educational opportunities because in marginalized agricultural communities you know up in mountains far from cities it's very hard to get education and there may not and there's not the money for it either so we um, provide educational scholarships for tea communities and that goes to um, not just at low level and we, we thought okay there are charities doing primary education but what happens if you're a really gifted kid you know super brilliant and you want to be an astronaut or a doctor or a lawyer or a politician you know you've no access to tertiary to secondary education to university and that was the bit that I think is where injustice lies when people in marginalized communities have no access to the next step so we, we, we give full university scholarships. And that is like books, food, travel, transport, the whole thing. So if you come from a very um, poor family, you have all the access you need rather than just um, the, the, um, the tuition fees. That's amazing. And it's so nice to see businesses like yours realizing that they can have a very positive effect on the communities that they're involved with. And I, I think more businesses need to have a social component, you know, mm. be a, become a social enterprise. And I just think it's wonderful what you're doing with that, so. Well, the same with you, and this is why I find what you do so interesting. You understand that there's three parts of sustainability, aren't there? There's environmental sustainability, which we, we all understand. There's economic sustainability, it has to it has to be something that that um, enhances the community where it comes from but and sustainably and then there's social sustainability so that that's community can survive and i think if we look at the three pillars of sustainability to ignore one of them the whole edifice collapses and it's not pollyannaish it's not um foolish i've been laughed at so many times by men in suits that this is not the way the world is. This is not how tea businesses are run. This is not how any kind of business is run. They're like, just because that's 
the way the world is doesn't mean it has to be that way. And we can prove it. You know, we flourish. The staff I can have, the people who work at Red Tea, that my my collaborators, they are amazing because they believe in what we do because we do something more. So you know, you get a better uh, cohort of of people to work with, and then your customer believes in you. And so it's it's not a, a foolish, um, unselfish um, business practice to look at long-term sustainability real embedded sustainability you know also we protect our supply chain it makes sense on every level if if we carry on in the status quo and you know life expectancy keeps dropping in the tea world and it becomes more and more um socially unsustainable it's not going to survive well, certainly not unless not only vast industrial tea would survive you know picked by machines processed by machines bagged by machines that would give nobody any pleasure or 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 joy yeah it does seem to kind of suck all the joy out of this amazing botanical gift really and i mean mm. we do yopan the same way is this is something that came out of the earth and it was cultivated over thousands of years and perfected, you know, lovingly in a way. And, yeah. and what the industrial food complex does to it is to totally remove all of that romantic, you know, beautiful history and quality of it and, and just throw it away. And uh, I, I think that's horrible, but it's, it gives people like us opportunity, you know, and yeah. to make it better. That's sure. and I, and as we succeed, which we will, and we are, and we do, even though it's very challenging times right now, as we persevere and succeed, we will shape the way um, those big businesses work because young people don't believe in that shit anymore. It's right. really wonderful. Hope really lives because young people are really aware of social injustice. They're aware of um, where things come from. They want provenance. They want clean food. They want beautiful flavors. You know, young people drink craft beer. They don't, you know, that's amazing, isn't it? Because when I was young, I drank the cheapest beer there was. But, you know, people, young people around the world are drinking less and better in all kinds of ways, in coffee, in alcohol, in tea. And so it's only going to get better and better. As the old, crusty, uh, small-minded people die off, and the young take over, the world will be better. I believe it. I believe it too. I think there's a lot of the proof in the uh, way things are going right now <laughs> to suggest that that's true. And for uh, everybody who's listening to this thing, look around you. The world is going to, you know, to hell. I'd say that look, in our lives, in our relationships, in our love lives, in our business, and in society, there's always a step backwards you know you do two steps forward and then there's a step back and you're like everything was going so well and you're like oh there's a step back but the motion is forward so right now we're on a step back sure enough but we are progressing evolution is is working positively we don't regress we're not going back into the sea although dolphins did <laughs> god that's a bad analogy isn't it because maybe it's better to be a dolphin or a whale i guess time will tell Yes. Time is the revelator, you know. Um, so I, I want to talk about a little bit, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but the, the way that you feel about food and about tea has given you 
a lot of credibility in in the industry enough so that you've been able to collaborate with some of the most acclaimed restaurants and hotels in the world. Um, I mean, you go on your website and there's just pretty much a, a laundry list of the best places one can ever hope to eat. <laughs> Noma and Claridge's and Elaine Ducasse and all of these amazing places that I've never been able to eat at. And most people probably never will, but it's an experience unto itself. And um, so how does, if, if I ever got the amazing opportunity to go to dine at Noma in Copenhagen, hmm. would the tea experience that you've curated there, what would that look like? That's a very unique place. Um, um, and the tea experience is very unique too. So um, it depends on the guests because they're very much guest focused. But just say you were a very normal guest, you'd be offered a wine pairing, or a juice pairing. And over the years, I have infiltrated the juice pairing because it was, it is very much herbaceous and, and vegetal. But that, um, as you will know, when we're drinking juices made from herbs um, and vegetables, they can be very um, heavy and also quite competitive with food. So one of the ways of uh, changing the texture and softening the flavors is to use um, tea, as a background to dilute and to um, you know soften and so um, there are there are iced teas in the juice program and then there are iced teas behind the juices in the juice pairing so that's super interesting and then there are pairings of tea that come in as part of the menu which is really exciting one of the most exciting things was when they was a it was in the um, autumn season when they had a lot of mushrooms and they put a puer a Malawi puer, fermented tea from Malawi into the pairing to have with the mushroom dish. So that was super, so it wasn't, um, it wasn't actually a pairing, it was actually part of the dish. And they've done that with some oolongs as well. And I think this year it's, um, this season it might be um, one of the, uh, the petals, um, a, a blossom from Nepal, from, from Junchia Bari in Nepal. So that's exciting. So it actually becomes a part of a dish it's background to the juice pairing. And then if you would like to have tea with the meal, you could have tea all the way through and they will do a bespoke uh, hot tea and cold tea pairing for you. And then at the end, you get um, tea or coffee, um, lovely Tim Vendelbo coffee from Norway um, or rare tea. And those blends are made um, specifically for each season um, to be absolutely unique everything you get in Enoma is unique you couldn't have anywhere else so I work with the chefs to say okay this is where we're going to be this is the flavor profile of where we have for dessert this is where we want to leave the, the palate and it's super fascinating and fabulous to do and privileged to be in the kitchen and work with them but also really teaches me a lot because I'm constantly reblending, reformulating and I, I would say just say, can I have all the tea you could give me, please, when you go to Noma? <laughs> it's okay. going to be interesting to see how it all works out because people are not traveling and um, fine dining is, is going to be uh, much more of a domestic, um, um, what's the word, experience. We're going to be experiencing our own restaurants in London. People are going to be having access to places they might not be able to get into before. And the same with Noma, it's going to come... It's going to be very Danish 
people going to, to know. I wonder how they take it because it has been very international before. Danes don't generally drink a lot of tea, so I'm hoping this is going to be my uh, my way in to convert. Conversion, yeah. Well, if anybody can convert them, it will be you. Um, and same with the U.S. You know, everyone's a coffee drinker, but I, I feel like it's it is going the other way finally. Yeah. Um, and what you have is something so American and so wonderful, and it has stimulating properties. You know, it really does, both in terms of set in, in all the senses. I was just speaking to someone in California the other day who was a five coffees a day drinker and they made the switch in lockdown because of their anxiety. And they said they feel so great now and they'll never go back to that coffee habit. Not to say that coffee doesn't have a place in life. It's just that, you know, relying on it for stimulation when there are other forms of stimulation that will make you less anxious. Sure. It's, um, it's something that the world is, is, is definitely waking up to. Absolutely. And, and what we see here is that it transcends pretty much all demographics, you know, older people, younger people, wealthy people, poor people, uh, people of color. It doesn't matter here anyway. Everybody mm. is starting to drink more tea. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really f just awesome. You know, it's, it's great for I'm us. I'm finding it. I'm, I would say I agree with you 100% on it's all across demographics. It doesn't matter your ethnic background. It doesn't matter your um, social, your economic background. But I have noticed it's less. The conversion to good tea is less among is, is smaller amongst old people. We know this from our website. You know, and looking delving into the figures, you know, eighteen to thirty is the biggest group. They're the ones who really care about what they put in their bodies and are less hoodwinked by advertising and vast corporations. Sure. Like, you know, the cost of tea, the cost of coffee, the cost of chocolate, of cocoa, has been dropping, sorry, the set, the, not the cost, the, um, the price of tea leaf, coffee beans, cocoa, dropping, dropping all the time. And yet we're paying more for it. Something is going, is going wrong, isn't it? Well, and then there's these fast advertising campaigns. And I, don't know, I wonder. Somebody... I, I don't think young people are so naive to that. Well, it goes into your into your book um, where you talk about English breakfast and how that originated. And I know that your company has an English breakfast tea, but it's it's definitely not the same. Many, how, yeah, many, and and it's not the same as how that blend originated, right? It was a wasn't it a, a wartime tea that was born out of no, actually, um, uh, English breakfast was actually goes goes way back um, okay. it was a okay. it was a term um originated in new york to describe what english people were drinking for breakfast and around the turn of the 19th uh, 20th century so around 1900 um it was advertised in new york as a pre-made blend because british people were blending chinese and indian tea we now finally had tea from india we'd stolen it from china been growing it since like the 1840s um, and by, by 1900, it's, it was you know, easy to get hold of and very good quality. And so it was very common to, to blend together beautiful flavor. And in America, it was also uh, became, it became super fashionable. So, you know, if you go to an antique store, you can find a box with two um, drawers or, bo or boxes and in the middle, a glass bowl. Those were tea blending sets, they're tea cases. And they were you know, 1910s, 1920s, 
very 1890s even as far back as then very popular so you'd have your chinese tea in one side your indian tea in another or your assam and your darjeeling like two different kinds of tea and you blend depending on how you felt that day or what you wanted but the most important thing is that the idea was to make something better than the sum of its parts ah. like the point of blending wasn't to make something bland and unitarian and okay it was to make something fucking amazing that's something a great way to look super at super delicious yeah. And it wasn't, but you're right, in wartime, everything changes. Global trade breaks down. It's very, very hard to get hold of tea. You can't get any Chinese tea. They've had a revolution as well. We're trying to get any tea, and the government buys tea contracts. The British government bought tea contracts and said, Look, I don't care how it tastes. This is the money we've got. Give us the tea. And then they blended it to be this palatable as possible for soldiers and for the domestic you know and for people and we, we stopped caring how tea tasted and it was like thank god we've got some tea stiff up a lip at least i've got a mug in front of me <sighs> yeah uh because it's better than nothing i guess yeah and so that and that became what was normal you know cheap industrial blended for uniformity and that's now called builder's tea or normal tea in the uk and normal tea in the states too and we, you know, you in the States, you might make it into iced tea. And in here, you, in Britain, you might make it into hot tea, but it's the same thing. You have to dilute, you have to disguise it. In America, you, in Miami, you put a lot of sugar in, uh, maybe some lemon juice, and then some more sugar, because it's pretty horrible. Yeah. And, we, and in Britain, we put milk. Yeah. Something to disguise the, the bitterness, I guess. Yeah. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with bitterness, but I um, mean, it's not. It's a one-dimensional flavor. Like there is some bitterness in Yupon, but it's part of a very complex flavor profile. There's always some bitterness in tea, but what you want is the hugely wonderful, complex myriad of flavors and bitterness only being one of them. Whereas cheap industrial tea is pretty flat, pretty bland and just bitter. So much history there, you know, and, and we see that here with Yupon, but with tea as well, it's like, man, there's just, thousands of years of, of yeah, you blew me away i'd love to read your book when it comes out you really blew me away about marketing about how um Yupon had been had been sort of wiped out by nasty british propaganda well it was wiped out by americans too uh so it's it's not like i don't want to just pick on the, the brits um but it didn't help everybody had a hand in it you know and mm. What's really important about Yopan here, as it's related to indigenous people, is that it's part of a story of erasure. You yeah. know, you have an entire culture here that was once comprised of mil literally millions of people that is now totally extinct. There's yeah. nothing left of it at all. They had no written language. Um, so they only had spoken word language. So there's no history books. There's no parchment. There's no hieroglyphs. There's nothing. And that was the whole goal the entire time and uh the story of yopan is very much intertwined with that you know the yeah. fact that you get rid of a whole people in their culture you get rid of their food their cuisine their agriculture as well um fortunately with tea that hasn't happened the same way you know you have um you of course do have appropriation and things that are bad but you also have these things that have been going on for thousands of years that are pretty well preserved in a way that you can at least see them and, and participate in them. And um, I think that's really cool, you know, the juxtaposition there. And isn't it amazing that the plant has survived 
the knowledge of the plant has survived and that's you know it was a thread that you caught hold of but you got hold of it just in time and it's and you can like re weave a beautiful um uh, garment a beautiful fabric from that thread and you can and it and remember so much and, and learn so much about those cultures through this. Well, I want to thank you um, for joining us. And I want to thank you for all the work that you do because it inspires some of what we do. You know, the, the Can you believe it was only November that we met? It was so look, a short time ago. It seemed like a world ago, didn't it? Like I know, and I'm, and I'm, I will. I'm really excited. As soon as I come back to America, I promise I will come visit you and see for myself and and begin this direct trade. Well, we will hold you to it. So please do, because I'm very inspired by what you do too. Really, uh, Henrietta, where can where can we find your book? Um, in all the normal online places, um, and a few lovely independent bookshops. I mean, it's very widely available in the States. It's done really, really well. I'm glad to say, very proud to say. And you can also get, um, I now, since we last spoke, I've recorded the Audible. Oh, and you so, have some pleasing like voice. So hopefully you recorded it. It was your voice. Yeah, I did. Eight hours and a minute of time with me you could spend. <laughs> so please, uh, please do. And also the tea is uh, available um, in the States. So we have a warehouse in Dallas. So it's, we try and make the shipping as sustainable as possible as well. So it goes from source to Dallas and then to, to our, our customers in America. Not all of them, but most of them. Well, thank and as you. we know now, sorry, one more thing to say. As you were just saying before, online is so important to us now. If we're going to keep supporting our farmers, we need a route to market and thank God that there is the online market and that we can all stay home and stay safe and yet still enjoy tea and support farmers around the world. So we can find your tea at, um, is it rareteacompany.com? Yes, .com, Rare Tea Company, not um, Rare Tea Seller, which is an American company that founded itself a few years after I did with my logo. But anyway, we won't go to that, but yeah, it's company, not seller. All right, Rare Tea Company. Henrietta, thank you so much. Hopefully we can do this again once um, COVID crazy time is over. Yeah, and I'd love that. And I would love to, uh, I really do look forward to coming to visit you. All right. Thank you, Henrietta. Thank you so much, love. Bye. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of Teacology with Henrietta Lovell from Rare Tea Company. You can find our podcast on iTunes and Spotify, as well as on Anchor FM. Once again, I'm Brian White, co-founder and CEO of Yopon Brothers American Tea. Please visit our website at yoponbrothers.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks for joining us again. See you next time.